Well, again, good morning. It's great to see you. It's great to be back. uh, Those of you, if you're new to Grace, you may not know, but um, the last couple of weeks I was in Israel. I've been to Israel a number of times and went on another trip just these past two weeks. And Jeff Sherwood, who's one of our elders and interim staff, he filled the pulpit for me while I was gone, and I want to thank him for that. Um, But um, I love going to Israel. If you've not been to Israel, it's something you absolutely must do. Um, I think taking a trip to Israel... Um, I've jokingly said in the past that if I were a cult leader, which I'm not, I promise you, um, but if I were a cult leader, the only initiation requirement to be in my cult is you have to go to Israel. I promise I, wouldn't, I won't ask for you to sign over your assets to me. I'm not going to pass around red Kool-Aid for everybody to drink and then collapse. We're not going to do any of that stuff. But if you really wanted to be in my cult... A trip to Israel is the one thing I would require you to do. Uh, Which brings me to some very exciting news. Uh, Some of you have asked about the next trip to Israel. And on Thursday of this week, just a few days ago, I met with Morningstar Tours, the group that arranges trips to Israel for us. And uh, we are announcing a brand new, never-been-done-before trip. And I want to give you just a little bit of information now to whet your appetite for it. But in fall of 2023, late October, early November, I'm going to lead a trip that's never been done before. Um, We're going to go to Israel, obviously. And this trip, unlike other trips, this trip is going to specifically focus on the New Testament. No offense to the Old Testament, but we're going to zero in and focus really in on the storyline of the New Testament. We're going to go to the Sea of Galilee, and if you're not familiar with Israel and geography there, the Sea of Galilee is really where Jesus did the majority of his ministry, where he spent the majority of his time. And so we're going to see all of the sites around the Sea of Galilee. We'll take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. If you want to try to walk on water, you can. Um, We're going to go to the city of Magdala, the home of Mary the Magdalene. We're going to go to Capernaum. Uh, We're going to go up to Caesarea Philippi, where the apostle Peter Uh, made the great proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we're going to really zero in on the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, the Mount of uh, Beatitudes, and all of the places around the Sea of Galilee. And then we're going to travel south and go to the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse, the great end times sermon that Jesus delivered. And we're going to walk through Jerusalem and walk through the streets of Jerusalem and see the different possible paths that Jesus walked on during the time of his trials and ultimately leading to his crucifixion and the tomb where he would be resurrected. And we're just going to zero in on the storyline of the New Testament. It's going to be a remarkable trip. But it's not over. Because after we finish our time in Jerusalem, we're all going to jump on a plane and we're going to fly over to Greece and we're going to go to Athens. And we're going to see a place called Mars Hill where the Apostle Paul delivered an incredible sermon to the Athenian people and the philosophers there of his day and proclaiming this sermon to the unknown God and proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. We're also going to go to Corinth as in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and we're going to see Uh, where this church, this early church, struggled with a lot of issues and division that you read about in the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. So we're going to go to Greece and see those sites. 
And then the trip's not over. We're going to jump on a plane and we're going to fly to Rome. And we're going to see uh, the Colosseum. And we're going to see the catacombs. And we're going to see the traditional place where both Paul and Peter were imprisoned at different times, conveniently, in the same cell. Uh, by the way, one of the things you'll learn is that some of these sites, uh, it's convenient because, you know, you have to pay entrance fees. But uh, anyway, it's going to be a remarkable trip. This trip has not been offered before. It's a brand new trip. And uh, we're going to do it again fall 2023, late October, early November. Uh, Sign-ups probably won't open up until July, but this is going to be a trip like none other. I think this trip is going to be probably the biggest one that Morningstar will do in the future, this tour company. Um, I'm super excited about it, so save your shekels, and uh, I'll let you know more details uh, as it gets nearer and nearer. But I do think a trip to Israel is like a rite of passage. I think it does something to you and to your faith as you walk in these places, you see the sights, you engage into the culture, and you read the Bible then in a whole new way. And these different rites of passage, I th passages, I think, are important for us. And we're going to look this morning at a particular rite of passage inscribed in Scripture in Exodus chapter 12. I want you to open your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 12. This morning, we're beginning a real focus in on the events leading up to the crucifixion of Christ as we anticipate celebrating his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And to begin this kind of mini-series, we're going to open up our Bibles today to the book of Exodus chapter 12 and consider this monumental moment in the life of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, called Passover. And so as you're opening up to Exodus chapter 12, I want you to grab your outline there in your bulletin as well. And you can see we're going to take a look at three things together this morning. First, we're going to take a look at the text of Exodus chapter 12 and why this event is so important biblically. Then we're going to do something a little unique, perhaps even a little bit weird. If you're a guest here this morning, you're probably going to walk away thinking, that was one of the strangest services I've ever been a part of. These people are a little off. And you might be right. Um, but we're going to walk through the elements here on this table, a traditional Passover Seder, all in an effort for me to convince you to attend the Passover Seder that Josh Herman is going to be leading us through on April the 10th. So that's number two on your outline. And then we're going to talk about application and how we can think about this today. Does that make sense? Grab your Bible, open up to Exodus chapter 12, and let's first look together at the text. Let's look at the text here in Exodus chapter 12 and really set the context of what it is we're talking about. Now, the first thing you need to know before we even jump into the details of the passage is that when you read through the events here in Exodus chapter 12, as we talk about Passover, today it's really three holidays that have kind of been rolled into one. But in the context here of Exodus chapter 12 and the story of Passover, you also see not only Passover mentioned, but also unleavened bread and first fruits. So today, in some ways, all of these ideas have been rolled into one major holiday, one major celebration. Uh, but in the scripture, you see these events happening one right after another. In fact, on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, 
is when Passover was supposed to be observed. The next day began a week-long celebration of unleavened bread. So Passover's on the 14th day of the month, and then on the 16th day of the month is first fruits. Now what's interesting, as we go through the text, as we go through this table together, my main goal for you this morning is that you see how much of this ultimately points to the person of Jesus. For example, uh, I believe that Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. And he was then resurrected on the day of first fruits. So even the chronology that we're going to think through together this morning, it all ultimately points to him. But let's look at the text. Let's uh, kind of dig into the passage here and work through exactly what it was this particular holiday, the feast of Passover that God gave to the Jewish people. Notice Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. Notice this is while they're in the land of Egypt. The Lord says, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Let's pause right here. So now God is speaking to Moses, to Aaron. He's speaking to them while they are still in slavery, still in Egypt. And I want you to notice what God says here. God is really beginning something new here for the Jewish people. And he tells them that this month is now to be the beginning of months to you. This month now is going to be the first month of the year for you. Now, if you're familiar with the Hebrew calendar, the month of Nisan is actually not the first month in the calendar year. But what God does here is very interesting. It's like he draws a line in the sand and he says, I want you to start counting time now from a different perspective. So the Jewish people had their regular calendar, but now the day of Passover, this month of Passover, is now the first month in their religious calendar. This marks a new beginning for them. As God provides now the way of their redemption, he says, I want you to start thinking now that this is a new beginning. I love the lyric in the song we sang just a few minutes ago, when death was arrested and my life began. Similar idea. And I know that sometimes, Christians, you mark the day when you first trusted in Jesus. It's the same sort of idea. It's a new beginning, a fresh start in this day, this time period of redemption. And that's the idea that God, God is getting at here with the Jewish people. So what is this new beginning for them? Well, notice verses 3 through 6. God says to Moses and to Aaron, he says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, and you are to divide the lamb. He says, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. 
You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Let's pause right here. So in this new beginning, this time of Passover, this time to celebrate their redemption, notice it really centers in on this Passover lamb. God says, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to select a lamb, one for each household. And if you have a small household, not married of any family members, you can partner with your neighbor's household. You're to select a year-old male lamb without defect. And you're to select it on the 10th day and on the 14th day, four days later, you're to sacrifice this lamb at twilight. Now, Think about this for just a second. Sometimes when we read these verses, we just pass by so quickly. But put yourself in the sandals, if you will, of these people, and four days go by. And in the midst of these four days, you inspect this lamb, and you make sure that this lamb is without defect. And your kids are there, your grandkids are there, your neighbors are there, and you're all inspecting this lamb, looking it over, making sure that it's fit for sacrifice. And then after the fourth day, on the 14th day of the month, you sacrifice this lamb at twilight. But notice what you're to do after that, verses 7 through 11. God gives more instructions. He says, moreover, they are to take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it till morning you shall burn with fire. And you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and shall eat it in haste, in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. Again, everything is centered around this lamb, this sacrificial lamb. So after you and your family, you sacrifice this lamb, God says, I want you to take the blood of that lamb, and they were to spread the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their homes with a hyssop branch. And they're to mark their homes as a home that is observed and trusted in God's provision for them through this representative lamb. Notice they're to eat the lamb. It's to be roasted, very specifically cooked. Everything's very specific here. They're to eat it with bitter herbs. These bitter herbs are symbolic and representative of their bitter experience while they were slaves in Egypt. Notice as well that they were to eat it with their loins girded, sandals on their feet, their staff in their head, ready, hand ready to move as the children of Israel had to be ready to move when they were brought out of the land of Egypt. They're to eat it in haste, it says. This is the Lord's Passover. Now why? What's the deal? What is this really supposed to represent? Well, notice, keep reading verses 12 through 14. God here explains what he's teaching, what he's doing, what he's communicating through these symbols. He says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night 
and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, notice, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you're to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. So again, what's the point of this whole thing? Why would God have the Jewish people go through this painstaking effort to select this lamb, to inspect it for four days, to sacrifice it, to cook it in just the right way, to spread the blood over the door frames of their houses. What's the point of all this symbolism and all this imagery? It's a tangible reminder, a picture, a memorial, something they're to do year after year, generation after generation, of how God passed over these homes when he brought about the death of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. This was God's main instrument of redeeming and rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. And God says, I want you to do this literally every year. And now for thousands of years, Jewish people have been observing Passover in their homes year after year after year after year. A number of years ago, um, our family, my family, we started observing a Christian Passover Uh, Passover that we intentionally use to point our kids and people we invite over to our house to point them to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate Passover lamb that we celebrate uh, Easter. But one of the things I love about Passover seders is that in many seders, as the story of the Exodus, as the story of God's Passover is told, it's told as though you were there. So it's not just a story of what God did to the Jewish people and their ancestors long ago, but often as the story is told, it's told as though you were there, you were walking in those steps, you were participating in this ultimate story of God's salvation and redemption. And the entire Seder meal, as we think about now number two on your outline, the traditions that have evolved over time, they're all participatory They're all designed to involve everybody at the Seder meal to recall and to remember, to walk through this redemption story that God brought to the nation of Israel. And again, here in just a few weeks, um, Josh Herman is gonna lead us through a full Seder meal. Well, not full, still abbreviated, because sometimes they can be like hours and hours and hours. I think ours is two, right? Okay, Uh, yeah, roughly. Um, What I'm gonna do for us this morning is to just whet your appetite, if you will. And I'm not gonna walk us through chronologically because Josh is gonna do that. What I'm gonna do is highlight just some of the major elements that you see in a Passover Seder. And I wanna preface it by saying that um, just like with any church, um, so likewise you might see different elements or things explained in slightly different ways and that's okay. Um, But what I'm gonna do is just kind of walk you through some of the major elements Um, and really, Passover begins the evening before. The observance, this is number two on your outline, the traditions. Uh, The first major tradition really begins the evening before Passover, and this is one of my favorites. 
Because the evening before, the entire house is supposed to be cleansed of all leaven. So any bread that has yeast or anything with leaven in it is supposed to be removed from the house. And one of the traditional ways that this is done is the father of the house takes leavened bread and he sprinkles it in different places around the house. And then he sends his kids with a wooden spoon and a feather to sweep up all the leaven. This is a beautiful way to convince your kids to clean the house. Um, It's brilliant. Um, It's brilliant, but also it communicates something, right? Biblically, we saw in Exodus chapter 12 that they're to eat unleavened bread. And one of the traditional explanations is because they didn't have time for the bread to rise. This is one of the reasons why unleavened bread is used. But also, we know that throughout Scripture, leaven is often a symbol for sin, And so the night before the Passover meal, as we're searching the house for leaven, I think it's an invitation for us also to search our hearts for sin, to use this as a time of preparation and repentance as you observe the Passover meal the next day. Think about, for example, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about Christ as our Passover lamb. And he says, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so the night before, I think, is an invitation to prepare your hearts for the Passover celebration the next day. So that all comes before. When the Passover meal actually begins on the day of Passover, uh, really the first thing that's done, and you see them down here on the table, is there's a lighting of the candles. And it's the woman of the house who lights the candles and says, says a prayer of blessing over the service. As I mentioned, one of the things I love about the Passover meal is everybody gets involved. Women get involved, the children get involved, everybody is involved in this Passover meal. And it all communicates meeting. So after the woman of the house lights the candles, the service begins. Uh, In some Passover seders, the father of the house and the one leading the seder will say a prayer of blessing over the children. Again, this gets the children involved in the story. One child is then selected, and he or she gets, gets to ask a series of questions. There's four major questions that kind of guide the Passover story. Questions like, hey, why on this night do we only eat unleavened bread? Hey, why on this night do we eat bitter herbs? Hey, why on this night do we dip the herbs twice? Why on this night do we eat while we're reclining? And these four questions asked by one of the children, they're then answered as the story of Passover is retold. So those are some of the kind of the introductory elements to the Passover Seder. Again, I'm not going to go through this chronologically. I'm looking at it more thematically. And the next major theme that I want to look at are these four wine glasses here on the table down here. Wine wine or grape juice, whatever your choice, it doesn't matter. Um, But throughout the course of the evening, spread out, four cups are consumed. 
And each cup carries with it one of the promises of God in the Exodus story. The first cup recalls God's promise to the nation of Israel, I will bring you out. I will bring you out. This is often called the cup of sanctification as God set apart the Jewish people and he brought them out of the land of Egypt. The second cup later in the service that's consumed remembers God's promise, I will rescue you from bondage. It's often called the cup of plagues. What's unique about the second cup is one drop of wine or grape juice is removed for each of the plagues that God brought upon the nation of Egypt. So each one of the plagues is recited and reviewed with one cup of wine being removed from the cup. The cup of plagues. I will rescue you from bondage, God says. The third cup that's consumed later in the meal is remembering the promise of God, I will redeem you. It's commonly called the cup of redemption. And I believe it was this cup, the third cup, the cup of redemption that we read about in the New Testament when Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It was through his blood that he brought a new kind of redemption, the once for all sacrifice in his body and in his blood. That's the cup of redemption, the third cup. That then leaves the fourth cup. The fourth cup remembers the promise of God, I will take you as my people. It's often called the cup of praise or sometimes called the cup of acceptance. Now, an interesting thought, and this is a bit of speculation, but some scholars believe that on the night Jesus took this Passover meal with his disciples, he did not drink the fourth cup. Because when he drank the third cup, the cup of redemption, he also said, I'm not going to drink from this cup again until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom. And he possibly, again, speculatively, did not drink the fourth cup, the cup of acceptance, the cup of praise, because the Jewish people rejected him as their Messiah. But one day at his second coming, when the Jewish people alive at that time will embrace and accept Jesus as their Messiah, it's perhaps then that he'll finish this Seder meal as he drinks the cup of acceptance with those Jewish people who have trusted in him as their Messiah. Again, that's a bit of speculation, uh, but quite possibly what exactly, hap- exactly what happened that night. Now, you may notice down here that there's a larger cup as well. This is called the cup of Elijah. And uh, at the Passover meal, there's an empty chair reserved for the prophet Elijah and a cup that's set there at the table for him. Because associated with the ministry of Elijah in the Old Testament, you see uh, this anticipation of the coming Messiah. And the Passover meal itself is filled with anticipation that maybe this year the Messiah, the Savior, will come. By the way, in the New Testament, as we read about the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, his ministry is often connected with the ministry of Elijah. Because he was the one coming in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. So these are the cups that you find on the table in a Jewish Passover or Seder meal. Now let's talk about the plate. You may have noticed the plate over here. The Seder plate 
has several very important elements on it. And again, the Seder meal is supposed to be participatory. And this is literally a bittersweet time as you enter into the Seder plate. Because arranged on the Seder plate are different types of foods that all have significant meaning associated with them. One of the first things you eat is a green piece of lettuce or parsley. It's meant to represent the hyssop that the Jewish people use to paint the blood over their doorframe of their house during the Passover event. But that parsley is dipped in salt water, and salt water is meant to remember the tears that were shed during their time of slavery in Egypt. There's also on the Seder plate a bitter root, and it's often horseradish. If you've never had horseradish, you're in for a treat when you have it. Um, It literally brings a tear to your eye. It's painful to experience. But the bitter root and the horseradish is meant to recall the bitterness and the pain of slavery in Egypt. Some New Testament scholars believe it was during that portion of the Seder that Jesus dripped, uh, dipped the bread into the bitter root and handed it over to Judas, the one who would betray him, symbolizing the bitterness and betrayal that was happening that night. A third thing that's there on the Seder plate is called haroset, and it's a sweet-tasting mixture, often of apples or dates and honey and a little bit of wine, and it's meant to look like and represent the bricks that the Jewish people made while slaves in Egypt, and it's meant to be a reminder of the sweetness of the redemption that God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Also on Seder plates today, you'll typically find the shank bone of a lamb for Most Jews today, they don't sacrifice a lamb for the Seder meal. Some still do, actually. But there'll be the shank bone of a lamb to remind them that they're not able without a temple to make the sacrifice. There's also an egg, hard-boiled, that's dipped in the salt water and is meant to be a reminder that the temple no longer stands. So that's the Seder plate. But my favorite, one of my favorite things about the Passover meal is this little thing down here, this little uh, piece of material. It's called the echad, or the unity. What's amazing about this is that it's viewed as a unit, as a unity, but there's three compartments to it. And at a certain point in the Seder meal, the leader of the Seder takes the second piece of matzah, not the first, not the third, but the second piece of matzah. And he removes it from the echad, from the unity, and he's instructed to break it. Does this sound familiar? It's not the third piece, not the first piece, but the second piece, I believe, connecting it to the person of Christ, the second person of the Trinity that's taken, broken, And what's incredible is that one of those broken pieces of the middle matzah is taken and it's wrapped in a piece of linen or white cloth. And the leader of the Seder then takes it away. It's given a new name called the afekomen, a Greek word that can be translated as that which comes after or I came. 
And this middle piece of matzah, it's wrapped in linen, it's taken away and it's hidden, but it will re-emerge at a later point in the Seder meal. Later in the Seder meal, all of the kids are invited to run from the table and to go find that middle piece of matzah that was previously hidden. Now, somewhere in this room, I pre-hid a middle piece of matzah. And just like the leader of a Seder meal will do, for the person who finds it, I'm going to richly reward you with a $10 gift card to Baskin Robbins. So stand up, look around you. I, knew, I figured at this point you might be getting a little restless, a little bit bored. So somewhere in this room, I pre-hid a piece of matzah, the afekomen, for the fortunate person who will find it. I'll give you a hint, it's on this side of the room. So you can stand up and go over here. The first service, they took quite a long time. Um, It got a little awkward. Somewhere in this section is the middle piece of matzah. And it's been found. (laughs) Well done. But isn't this incredible? I mean, think of the symbolism, the imagery that's contained in this. That the middle piece of matzah, the second piece, is broken. And it's at this point, I believe, that Jesus, in his Passover meal, took the bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, which we'll do here in just a few minutes. Um, Also, throughout the Seder, a couple more things. Different songs are recited. These are from the Hallel Psalms in the book of Psalms. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 has the line in it, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Again, this all points to Jesus. And then finally, the last thing really done in a Seder meal is There's a song and a proclamation of next year in Jerusalem. Because throughout the Seder meal, there's this messianic expectation and hope that perhaps this year is the year of the Messiah's coming. And maybe next year, as the Passover is celebrated, it'll be done with the Messiah in Jerusalem. And really with that, the Passover meal is concluded. Um, I love celebrating Passover especially as a believer, all of this imagery richly points to the person of Jesus, to his death and to his resurrection. Again, April the 10th, this is now number three on your outline. How do we practice Passover today? On April the 10th, Josh is gonna lead us through a Passover Seder. Spots are limited. And so sign up online. There's information in the bulletin. There's also a sign up out in the commons at the kiosk. You can go find Josh after the service. But I want to invite you to do this. Now, let me say, um, this, 
ordinance, this was given to the nation of Israel. They were to do this every single year. Now, you and I were not the nation of Israel. We don't live under the old covenant. But I think as New Testament believers who see how all of this ultimately points to the Messiah, this is something uh, we can certainly do. And we can recognize what it is truly about, what it really points to. That Jesus, the Lamb of God, the once for all sacrifice, laid down his life. And we can celebrate that as we take part optionally, not because we're under the law, but by observing a Passover as Christians. I love a story uh, told about P.T. Barnum. You know P.T. Barnum, Barnum and Bailey Circus. He, uh, there's a great story told about him that he had on display in his circus from time to time an exhibit he called the Happy Family. The Happy Family. And the Happy Family was really centered, the focal point was a lamb, and surrounding the lamb were tigers and lions and leopards and all of these predatory animals that would normally consume the innocent little lamb there in the middle. But P.T. Barnum had trained all these predatory animals to not consume the lamb. And the story is told that one year a pastor came and P.T. Barnum delighted to show this pastor this exhibit called The Happy Family. And the story is told that the pastor asked P.T. Barnum, the greatest showman, do you ever have difficulty here? Do you ever have any issues in this particular exhibit? To which allegedly P.T. Barnum said, well, apart from having to replenish the lamb from time to time, they usually get along pretty well. (laughs) But to me, it's a great reminder for us that we don't have to replenish the lamb. That Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God that his death on the cross is sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins and we need nothing else. And I wanna pause and give you the invitation for those of you here in this room, for those of you watching online, if you've never really stopped to consider what the Bible says about Jesus, I wanna give you that invitation now. This is the most important thought you will ever have. What do you do with this one who laid down his life for you? Do you trust him or do you try to trust in something or someone else? There truly is no other way for your sins to be forgiven, no other way for you to be made right with God than to trust in the ultimate Passover lamb in the person of Christ. There on your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider about this, but your one thing for this week, like I've mentioned before, I want to invite you to the April 10th Passover Seder here at the church. More information can be found on the website, worship guide, or out in the kiosk uh, out in the commons. Listen, I hope this was a kind of a fun, interesting, engaging way for us to begin to celebrate the death and ultimate resurrection of Christ our Savior. That's what these next several weeks are going to be about. And um, the good news of the gospel once again, is that Jesus has paid the price once and for all, and there's no greater thing to celebrate. And it's to that thought that we're now going to enter as we enter into a time of communion. So let me pray. Uh, Then we're going to have some deacons. If you didn't get communion elements when you came in this morning, they'll bring some to you. Uh, But let me pray, and then we'll take communion together.
Father, as we really take a step back and consider the story of your redemption, how you redeemed the children of Israel from slavery into Egypt, uh, out of Egypt, how you brought them into the promised land, as we think about the different traditions that have emerged over time around this Passover meal, Father, we see how all of it points to the Passover lamb of Christ. We see how all of it is a reminder of the ultimate sacrifice that he paid on the cross. God, I pray, God, I pray for our church. I pray for our families uh, that you would help us to see these creative ways of passing along our faith to our children and to our grandchildren. I pray that you would help us to truly exalt you, to celebrate you, to make our faith fun as we get to celebrate and rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins, eternal life that is ours as a gift. God, as we now enter into this time of communion, help us to see how all of this Passover imagery ultimately pointed to Christ, how he fulfilled all of these promises and how we get to celebrate, how we get to rejoice, how we get to remember the death that he made on our behalf, the new life that we have in him. God, help us now, I ask, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen.